listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. The welfare rights movement exemplified the problem. Protests by women welfare recipients proliferated in the mid-1960s, especially in black communities. By 1966, action groups had sprung up in 70 cities across 26 states. They gathered under the umbrella of the National Welfare Rights Organization, the brainchild of middle-class civil rights leaders. Professional men staffed the national office and they repeatedly made policy decisions that properly belonged to the women on NWRO's elected governing board. In 1972, the women pushed the men out. New executive director Johnny Tillman, a welfare activist from Watts, declared on a press release that NWRO views the major welfare problems as women's issues and itself as a strictly women's organization. If feminism developed rapidly, the gay and lesbian liberation movement appeared almost overnight. Early one Saturday morning, June 28, 1969, police began a routine roundup of homosexual patrons at the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in New York City's Greenwich Village. A lesbian patron resisted arrest and within minutes, a crowd barricaded the police inside the bar and torched it. Days later, activists formed the Gay Liberation Front. Radical and revolutionary men and women committed to fight the oppression of the homosexual as a minority group and to demand the the right to self-determination of our own bodies. Gays and lesbians organizations numbered nearly 800 by 1973. Thousands by the end of the decade, enrolling working people as well as students, artists, intellectuals, and street hustlers. For some workers, organizing unions was a civil rights struggle. New York City hospital workers, mostly black and Puerto Rican women, were excluded from a federal labor law protection barred from striking by state law and paid less than a living wage. Hospitals and health care workers, local 1199, started to organize private nonprofit hospitals in 1958. One better pay benefits with a 46-day strike in 1959 and strike for union recognition in 1962 when 1199 President Leon Davis went to jail for contempt of court A. Philip Randolph organized community leaders in a committee for justice for hospital workers. In late 1968 Charleston, South Carolina public hospital workers, mostly women, 
all black, formed local 1199B and started a strike described by Coretta Scott King as part of the larger fight in our nation against discrimination and exploitation against all forms of degradation that resulted from poverty and human misery. SCLC provided substantial support and after 113 days and more than 1,000 arrests, the drug and hospital workers news reported 1199 union power plots, SCLC preceded sole power equals victory in Charleston. Local 1199 became the National Union of Hospitals and Healthcare Employees, organizing in Maryland, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Farm workers were also excluded from the Wagner Act coverage. Committee organizers Cesar Chavez and Dolores Hurta started the National Farm Workers Association in 1962 in Delano, California. NFWA organized in the mutualista tradition, self-help through mutual aid, and by 1965 had about 1,700 members. That year, Filipino grape workers in the AFL-CIO Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee called a strike in Delano, and local AWOC leader Larry It Leon asked Chavez for help. NFWA joined the grape strike and spread it to 37 growers. Union members slipped into the fields to talk to workers. White loudspeakers blared appeals to join the strike. Women and children set up picket lines. Hurta created the union's nonviolence to their presence. The Black Power movement had a strong workplace component, too, in Boston. Pittsburgh, Chicago, and other cities, black construction workers formed independent unions to rival the AFL-CIO's Building Trades Affiliates. Harlem Fight Back started in 1965 and developed the tactic of bringing busloads of unemployed black construction workers to a building site and shutting it down until their demands were met. Black workers also mobilized inside the existing unions. After a wild strike against Speed Up in May 1968, black UAW members at the Chrysler Dodge main plant in Detroit found themselves targeted for retaliation by management and abandoned by the union. They formed the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which forced the company to rehire most of the fired strikers. The success inspired more rums in many Detroit area auto plants. They fought against discrimination by union and employers alike and for more control over working conditions. In 1969, rum leaders and inner-city voice activists founded the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which maintained contact with other black workers groups like the United Black Brotherhood in Ford plants in Mawa, New Jersey, and Lexington, Kentucky, and the Black Panther Caucus in the GM plant in Fremont, California. Hit hard by layoffs during the 1969-70 slump in the auto industry, the league turned to community organizing, but black rank-and-file caucuses pushed black officials in bolder directions. An ad hoc committee of concerned Negro auto workers got the UAW to stop opposing black candidates for local offices, and they began winning elections in black and even white majority locals. 
Latinos formed a parallel organization, the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, LCLAA, founded in 1973 at a conference in Washington, D.C., attended by UN CON officers and staff. In Puerto Rico, government repression of students' anti-war activists drove a new generation of radicals onto the labor movement. Beginning in 1968, a strobe wave swept the island. In 1971, 40 independent unions formed the Movimiento Obreros Unidos, MOU. Activists favored the independents, opposed the island's exceptions from the federal minimum wage, brought labor support to socialist clay day activities, and fiercely defended the autonomy from the AFL-CIO. New organizations United women workers, both union members and others. In 1971, 600 women from 24 cities met in Washington, D.C. for the first National Conference of Domestic Workers. They represented local groups formed since the late 1960s, mostly black women with experience in the civil rights movement. These groups joined the National Council of Household Employees, which lobbied to extend labor laws to cover domestics. In the early 1970s, the clerical workers built more than a dozen citywide associations such as women's office workers in New York, airline flight attendants who had unionized in the 1940s and 1950s formed Stewardesses for Women's Rights, FFWR, in 1974. It used lawsuits, pickets, and mass distribution of buttons, bumper stickers, and leaflets to attack what the attendants called sexploitation. They targeted company regulations on their hairdos, makeup, and weight, and airline advertising that depicted them as sex objects for male customers' satisfactions. When ads for National Airlines invited businessmen to fly its attendants, FFWR replied, go fly yourself. Labor feminism also brought union women together across occupations. In 1971, San Francisco activists founded the Union Women's Alliance to Gain Equality, Union Wage, whose mission statement declared that women's liberation must be for the working woman beginning on the job. Based mainly in California, Wage had outposts in the Pacific Northwest and New York City. Members aided drives to unionize women workers, promoted the formation of women's caucuses, and campaign to preserve and extend protective labor laws. In March 1974, more than 3,200 women unionists from across the country met in Chicago to launch the Coalition of Labor Union Women. In 1980, CLAW President Joyce Moeller became the first woman on the AFL-CIO's executive board. Lesbian and gay rights also became labor issues, though on a smaller scale. The American Federation of Teachers first condemned employer reprisals against gay and lesbian teachers in 1970. The Gay Teachers Association, formed in 1974, formed a caucus in New York City's United Federation of Teachers. The Gay Teachers Coalition, formed in 1975, allied with San Francisco's Bay Area Gay Liberation other workers took up the cause. The Gay Nurses Alliance started in 1973. Both men and women joined the chapters across the country. 
1974, the Independent Transportation Employees Union in Ann Harbor, Michigan negotiated the first contract to prohibit discrimination for sexual orientation. One lesbian member recalled, There was a vision there about how trade unionism can be used to achieve civil rights. Sam Francesco formed the Closet Labor Gay Alliance. Workers rallied around health and safety issues on an unprecedented scale. In the late 1960s, the United Mine Workers backed the Black Lung Association's campaign for compensation for black lung disease caused by breathing coal dust. UMW members in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia staged mass strikes for compensation in February 1969. Late that year, Congress passed the Coal Mine Health and Safety Act, which set up a compensation program and set new mine safety standards. Mining deaths from accidents and explosions dropped by half over the next decade. The Black Cans campaign inspired others. The Carolina Brown Lung Association worked to get compensation for bisunosis from cotton dust, the White Lung Association for compensation for asbestosis. In 1970, Congress established the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, authorized to set workplace safety and health standards and to monitor compliance, also known as OSHA. OSHA was not up to the task in its first 16 years. OSHA issued only 18 health and safety regulations, and even at its most active could inspect less than 2% of U.S. workplaces in any given year. Unionists joined health professionals and scientists in a network of committees, councils, and coalitions on occupational safety and health. These COSH groups developed local and state standards on workplace safety and health and provided advice and training to shop stewards and other local union officers. Strikes over the health and safety issues actually doubled in the first four years after OSHA's authorization. Some unions made other allies in the struggle against toxic workplaces. The oil, chemical, and atomic workers won a 1973 strike against Shell Oil after environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and the Environmental Defense Fund and community organizations like the National Tenants Association and NWAO boycotted Shell products. The next year, OCAW local officer Karen Silkwood began documenting radiation hazards at the Kerr-McGee Plutonium Processing Plant in Oklahoma City. After she was killed while driving to meet a union officer and a New York Times reporter, OCAW organized a network of environmentalists and Native Americans into the Sunbelt Alliances, which targeted the nuclear industry in the late 1970s. Unionism expanded dramatically in the public sector. By 1972, more than half of public employees belonged to a union set up from about 1 in 10 in the early 1960s. The American Federation of Teachers, the American Federation of Government Employees, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees became some of the largest unions in the land. Though strikes by public employees were almost always against the law, they broke out repeatedly anyway. Among hospital workers, teachers, office clerks, social workers, firefighters, police, and others. 
The first national walkout by federal employees began on March 18, 1970, when postal workers in New York City staged a wildcat strike for higher pay. It quickly spread to Boston, Pittsburgh, Akron, Houston, and other cities. Within days, the strikers numbered 150,000, despite federal injunctions. On March 23, President Nixon sent troops and the National Guardsmen to move the mail in New York and Union officers across the country were hauled into court. The strike ended two days later when the government agreed to negotiate. Postal workers got substantial raises and strikers got amnesty. The postal walkout came at the peak of a strike that extended from 1968 into 1977. Strikes numbered over 5,000 per year and involved an average of 2.5 million workers with more than 3 million out in both 1970 and 1971. The trend penetrated places where walkouts had been rare or unknown, and not only in the public sector. In 1969, singers, musicians, and dancers struck New York's Metropolitan Opera Company. Book publishers saw their first strike since the 1930s when Harper and Rowe office employees walked out in 1974. San Francisco Chinatown garment workers broke another long truce, striking the Zhongxi Company in 1975. Higher pay was the most common strike demand, as military spending fueled infection and living costs, but many strikes concerned issues of power like union recognition and management prerogatives on the shop floor. Women's fight for recognition could be especially bitter. In Detroit, clerical workers struck Prue off trailer for war six months in 1969 and into 1970. Operatives at the Anoita Knitting Hills in rural South Carolina stayed up for six months in 1973. Some 4,000 Chicano garment workers in El Paso, Texas struck Farrah Manufacturing from May 1972 into March 1974. They won with the help of a Farrah boycott backed by the AFL-CIO, a national network of community and campus activists and unions as far away as Sweden and Hong Kong. A chorus of business-friendly experts on public policy declared that the federal war on poverty had at last been won. In fact, it had scarcely made a dent. The proportion of families living below the official poverty line dropped from 11% in 1967 to 10% in 1973. But 23 million Americans still lived in poverty, including 10% of whites, 22% of Latinos, and 33% of blacks. President Nixon nevertheless decided in 1973 to shut down the Office of Economic opportunity and the many projects it had supported lost their funding. The federal wildcats had especially harsh consequences in cities where business leaders instigated reductions in public services. In New York City, investment bankers staged a coup by refusing to underwrite municipal bonds unless they could dictate the city's budget. A 1973 law drafted by businessmen transferred budgetary power from elected officials to an emergency financial board authorized to remove officials who defied its policies. By the time the board disbanded in 
1928, the city had laid off 25,000 public workers and gutted spending on schools, hospitals, sanitation, mass transit, libraries, parks, and recreation. In the late 1970, businessmen from California to Massachusetts funded groups agitating for lower property taxes, directing their appeals at white homeowners who were all too ready to believe that black and Latino people got too much attention and too much money from the government. Sixty styles community organizing receded under the new regimes. Urban infrastructure crumbled first and worst in the predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods that had been on the front lines of protest. Workers in the private sector also lost ground. President Nixon tried to control inflation with a wage and price freeze in 1971. The freeze, especially on prices, was widely ignored, but corporate pressure on the federal government stepped up. The Business Roundtable, founded in 1972 by the heads of General Motors, U.S. Steel, and other giant corporations, coordinated a national drive to control the legislative process. Corporate political action committees multiplied from 89 in 1974 to nearly 800 by 1978 and poured massive amounts into campaign financing as well as lobbying investing in Republicans and Democrats alike. Such investments paid off during the 1974-75 recession. The federal government abandoned its usual attempts to stimulate the economy and outspending unemployment soared to levels unseen since the end of the depression. Strike activity diminished until the economy recovered in 1976. Many thousands of workers brought complaints against unions to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, established by the Civil Rights Act. The building trades repeatedly promised to desegregate, but made negligible progress except when the government required integrated work crews on federally funded projects. Division over Vietnam were especially acrimonious. Most AFL-CIO leaders supported the war. The AFL-CIO expanded international operations with the Asian American Free Labor Institute, also known as CAFFLI, founded in 1968 to aid the corrupt but anti-communist Vietnamese Confederation of Labor. The Nixon administration promoted labor attacks on the anti-war movement, the infamous hard hat rampage on Wall Street and other pro-war union demonstrations in May 1920 were orchestrated by union leaders and White House operatives. Union democracy became an increasingly explosive issue during the long waves of strikes. In April 1970, Teamsters rejected a new contract signed by their president and shut down tracking from Los Angeles to New Hampshire. In May, a thousand information operators demanded higher pay and more sick days left New York telephone switchboards. In June, UMW members in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia walked out over hospital and pension benefits and tax of the Mine Safety Act. In August 1973, UAW staffers with baseball bats escorted members to work during wildcat strikes over safety at Chrysler's Mack Avenue, stamping the Detroit. UAW staged a one-day strike against union investment in Israeli bonds. The strike wave receded in 1978 
broken by continuing high unemployment, still around 6% more than three years after the end of the recession. Democrats had strengthened their control of Congress following Nixon's disgrace and fall in the Watergate scandal in 1974, and Democrat Jimmy Carter had taken the White House from incumbent caretaker Gerald Ford in 1976, but the AFL-CIO's political agenda ran into a business lobbying campaign that killed labor law reform and a minimum wage increase. Business lobbyists, meanwhile, won tax reform, cuts in federal grants in aid to cities and airline and trucking deregulation. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.